0: All right, Isaiah chapter 28, we began it last week. We didn't quite get out the backside of chapter 28. We went down as far as verse 19. If you remember, Isaiah chapter 28 through 34, we mentioned we find God pronouncing a series of woes against his people. Now, when we find this phrase in the scripture, woe is Ariel, and these different statements where God pronounces these woes, the idea of a woe is the implication of a warning. So, these are warnings that God is giving to his people, particularly for the error of their ways spiritually and morally. God is speaking both through Isaiah, remember, to the northern kingdom of Israel at times, and also speaking to the southern kingdom of Judah, at this time as well, we go back and forth. And they were trying, unfortunately, we've seen, to set up their own ideas and their own standards for morality as well as for spiritual life. They were trying to basically do a lot of what we see happening in our present day, where rather than realizing we were created in God's image, humanity is now trying to create God in their own image and according to their own likeness, and really to inverse the roles between God and mankind. And they were trying to basically do this, setting up their own standards and moral ideas and thinking they could replace the foundational truths that God had established by His Word. And because of that, problems began to happen in the midst of their rebellion against God. Instead of humbly admitting their error, they were trying to resolve things in the efforts of their own flesh, As God was bringing different foreign nations against them as his tools of discipline, rather than humbling themselves or repenting or seeking God for help, they were continually trying to make alliances and defense pacts with other nations around them, Egypt and Ethiopia and others, trying to basically elude their problems rather than recognize the error of their ways and the reason why their problems were happening. Now, It's in light of those things as God's kind of addressing those things that we come now to verse 20, where in a very picturesque way, again, God's using a rebuke here of how he was about to again bring judgment against them for the error of their ways. And we read in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 20, this picture, God says, for the bed is too short to stretch out on. And the covering, or the covers, the idea, the blanket, so narrow that one cannot wrap himself in it. Now, uh, being like Zacchaeus, a rather short man myself... Uh, it's difficult for me to somewhat relate to verse 20 when he says the bed is too short to stretch out on. Typically that happens to you guys maybe who are over six foot or I don't know, maybe a lady could experience the same. But if you're a tall person, uh, I've been on trips with taller guys and sometimes I've woken up in the morning and saw their feet hanging over the end of the bed. Or And what's really got to be probably the most miserable, and we don't typically have uh, footboards, as much as we did back in the day, were headboards and footboards. I remember my grandparents' house, there was a headboard and a footboard. But if you've got a footboard at the end of a bed, that's almost worse because you then can't even dangle your feet over the end of the bed. And that's that's pretty miserable. I remember one time when uh, right after uh, the, the bad weather happened down in Louisiana, boy, that's, that's many years ago. What was that hurricane called again? Katrina. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Uh, th- that I went down with uh, two other guys from our church. We just jumped in a pickup truck and, and drove down uh, to go down and just try and make ourselves available to minister. And, and on one occasion, um, we, we had to sleep in the pickup truck, and, and I did get a little bit of a foretaste of sleeping with my legs crunched up in the back of a pickup truck. The idea there is it's, you're trying to get rest, but it's just miserable still. You can't get comfortable. And though you're trying to be at rest, you're trying to get some peace and quiet, you can't. The bed is too short to stretch out on. And the same implication, verse 20, the covering so narrow. The idea is a blanket that's not big enough. You can't wrap yourself up. You can't get warm. A blanket's too small, and you're trying to stay warm. But it's, the picture here is these things, the short bed and the small blanket, they're not serving their purpose. They're failing us and leaving the individual miserable. And God's drawing this as a picture because God's saying, listen, you're trying to cover over your problems by resorting to an alliance with Egypt, or turning to Ethiopia, or resorting to these fleshly tactics, or these defense pacts with other nations, And, and you're doing what you can to try and make these things better for yourself, but they kept finding again and again it never worked, that they could never solve their own problems as long as they never confronted their problem and looked to God. And they were really just perpetually finding themselves uncomfortable and miserable with no resolution to their situation as they persisted in their rebellion against God. He says, verse 21, for the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. And that's a reference to a time, 2 Samuel 5, remember Mount Perizim, literally that's the Mount of Breakthrough. And it describes a time when God exercised his mighty power to bring a breakthrough "...against the Philistines, granting them a victory and defeating their enemies." He says, verse 21, "...and he will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon." And remember, the valley of Gi- Gibeon was Joshua chapter 10, when God again brought a miraculous victory through hailstones falling from the sky. As well as, that was the time, remember, when Joshua, wanting to succeed in the battle, boldly looked up and said, "Sun, stand still. And the idea, believing that God, the God of miracles, the God of creation, could literally keep daylight going longer so that they could accomplish a victory over their enemies. So both of these are references to God's mighty display of power. And in connection to God's mighty display of power, he then goes on, verse 21, to say that he may do his work, notice it's not a work of man, it's a work of God, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his, no, notice this, I have this circled, his unusual act, because notice what he's referring to, verse 22, now therefore do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong, that is, lest the... Uh, slavery, the bonds of their enslavement, be made worse and stronger where they're more enslaved. God says, verse 22, for I have heard from the Lord God of hosts, Isaiah says, notice, a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. So the context, notice, is a destruction that is determined upon the whole earth. In other words, a judgment that is coming from the Lord. A strong judgment that God is about to bring to pass as his work, verse 21, his awesome work that he will bring to pass his act, the context of judgment. And notice that the Holy Spirit tells us that God exercising his work, his awesome work, his act of judgment, verse 21 says that that is an unusual act when God has to do that. Again, the Bible tells us that God declares, I have no pleasure, saith the Lord, in the death of the wicked. Does God judge at times? Absolutely. He's righteous. He must judge. In fact, he would not be holy and just and righteous if his spirit strived with man forever. The Bible says that his spirit won't strive with man forever. God judges time morally, God is patient, he is merciful. He, he forestalls his judgment for so long. But there does come the time and the occasion where if God does not judge, then he would not be just any longer. He would not be righteous anymore. And, and so the Bible describes here this act, this awesome work and act of God by his mighty power as a just judge dealing with humanity's rebellion and sin and error and in the context of judgment as God speaks of it notice however even when he must do it verse 22 or verse 21 draws to our attention that whenever God has to use his power to bring judgment it's very unusual for him and the implication there is is he doesn't like to do it it's not his preference God is a loving, gracious, merciful father. And any parent who's a healthy parent, a loving, appropriate parent, understands what they mean. Now, you don't understand it when you're a child. When you're a child, you hate the statement. When you're a parent, you understand the statement. When you're disciplining or spanking your child's bottom and you say, This hurts me more than it hurts you, right? And I remember being a child, my father kind of had like a machine gun hand when he spanked my bottom. Uh, you, you, you try and get through the doorway, he could, you know, three or four just to launch you in there. Uh, and and when I had to discipline my children, I finally came to understand this concept that there was no enjoyment in doing that. I hated when I had to discipline my daughters. Uh, we had a, a Mr. Woody, and we did discipline our daughters, and we did inflict a degree of punishment, bad conce- or bad. decision painful consequence it's a part of the teaching process it was necessary at times but i never found pleasure in it it always was very awkward and uncomfortable and i didn't want to do it and it was it was it was unusual because it wasn't my preferred way of relating to my kids i wanted to bless them and 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 do kind things for them, and, and but yet I realized appropriately at times I did have to discipline, I did have to punish, it was a part of the process and a ho- healthy relationship. And notice that the Bible tells us that when God must judge, it's unusual to God, it feels strange to him. He never finds any pleasure or any enjoyment in it. It's something that puts him in an uneasy condition, if you would, because it's not God's preference, it's something that he does simply because he is righteous, but he never finds enjoyment in it. And I think that's important to understand because we look throughout the word of God and there are times where we see God's judgment. I mean, right now we're going through on Sunday mornings, right? The book of Revelation and, and the portions that we're in, we're seeing the severe wrath of God being poured out on Christ rejecting humanity. And one might look at that and think, man, how could God bring to pass such strong judgment and, and, and such severity in his judgment. Listen, please don't let your mind in your humanity or the devil deceive you thinking that somehow God is this weird, sadistic person who enjoys exercising and abusing his power to bring horrific judgment. That is not the case at all. These are judgments that are necessary, or God would not exercise them. He's a righteous, perfect, and a good and a just God. And if anything, what we're kind of saying when we wonder why would God's judgments look so severe, what we're technically doing is diminishing our rebellion. We're almost trying to justify that we're so good we don't deserve that as human beings. (laughs) Quite honestly, what does Psalm 103 says? That that God doesn't even treat us as our sins deserve. If we technically got what our sins deserve, it would be much worse even in the unusual, strange times when God has to bring judgment because he must do what's just in the midst of humanity's rebellion and their uh, sinfulness in rebelling against God. So again, important to take note of and always to remember that when God judges, it's very unusual for him. Verse 23, he goes on to say, give ear and hear my voice, listen and hear my speech. So again, he's calling for attention here, pay attention Does the plowman, he says, verse 24, keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? In other words, does he keep doing this same process perpetually and never transition to other things? Is all a farmer does is go out and plow, 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 and and never sow the seed, Uh, never reap the harvest. Just plowing is only one part of the process. He says he can't just perpetually plow. There are other things that a farmer must do. He must change and adjust as he does the process. When he has leveled its surface, verse 25, does he not then sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin? So there's the scattering now of the seed. Plant the wheat in its rows. Notice different types of things being planted as well, the barley in its appointed place and the spelt in its place. For he instructs him in right judgment, his God teaches him. Now take notice there in verse 26, that should be capitalized, he instructs him, that is God instructing the farmer. And then verse 26, the second half of it, clearly makes the statement evident, his God teaches him. Now it's talking about how farmers here have to use different methods to accomplish their attentions. They have to sow, they have to plant different types of seed, the cumin seed, he mentions there, the the wheat, the barley, putting them in their appointed places in their different rows, using different methods to accomplish the farming process, and they have to stay in step with the situation at hand and adjust to what they're doing according to what is necessary at the time. And so the farmer must adjust, uh, but notice God makes it very evident here that though a farmer has to do these different things and has to use these different methods and adjust with what they're doing as it necessitates, the farmer doesn't need to be a super educated individual to succeed. Because verse 26 says, because his God instructs him in right judgment, his God teaches him. So what does the farmer have to do? listen to God. All the farmer really needs to do is not have a degree in farming or even be highly educated with all the aspects of farming. He knows a few simple basic things, but the main thing the farmer needs to do is just stay teachable because he says his God instructs him in right judgment. In other words, God gives judgment to the farmer. Okay, it's time to stop plowing. Now you need to start sowing seed. You've been sowing seed. Now it's time to reap the harvest. And his God teaches him when he's to adjust, how he's to do things, the different methods that he's to use accordingly. So the farmer just needs to know and follow the laws of God, if you would, and work in cooperation with God's established ways. And when God says adjust, the farmer adjusts. When God says, I want you to now switch from this to that, The farmer switches and adjusts doing things at the right time in the right season. And God is faithful to instruct the farmer what to do and give him good judgment. And I love this reality because, listen, God teaches us. God speaks to us the Bible uses this analogy at times where we are God's fellow workmen in the fields of harvest. Again, Jesus even said the harvest is plentiful, the labor is few. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. And so God has given to each one of us opportunities to serve him in different ways. And the wonderful thing is that we really don't have to be that's smart, that's savvy, that intelligent. What we need to do is is become good listeners. And we need to remain teachable and realize that God has ways and God has methods and God can instruct us and give us right judgment when to change, when to adjust, what to do, and that God's willing to teach us. And our primary responsibility is just to let ourselves remain teachable and listen to God as he guides us Verse 27, he says, for the black cumin is not threshed with the threshing sledge, nor is the cartwheel ruled over the cumin, but the black cumin is beaten out with a stick. In other words, different ways uh, of doing the harvesting and the cumin with a rod. Verse 28, bread flour must be ground. Therefore, he does not thresh it forever, break it with the cartwheel or crush it with his horsemen. This also, Isaiah says, verse 29, comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. Now, it seems what Isaiah is picturing here is this idea how even God himself, like the farmer, working a field and tending the harvest, will and does work accordingly however the situation requires. So whether God sees this is a time for plowing or this is a time for planting or this is a time for reaping or whatever it may be, God wisely will adjust his methods and will always work according to what the situation requires in our lives. You may feel like, man, I just feel like my life is really just being plowed up right now. Well, God's a good farmer, (laughs) And if God determines, you know what, what's necessary right now is I've got to plow up some really hard soil in your heart, and I need to do what it takes to turn a few things over and to break up some of the hard spots so that your heart becomes tender and fertile and receptive, God knows what he's doing. And when the process of plowing is done, then God will switch, and then it may come a time where God is just sowing tons of things into your life. And he is just depositing and depositing and depositing. And, and then there may come a time where God starts to harvest and expect certain things. And God says, okay, now I expect a little bit more from you. I've worked in your life and I've deposited some things in your life. But now, now I'm looking for some fruit from you. And now I'm expecting a little bit of a harvest out of your life. And whatever the situation may be, God knows in the given season what we need and how he's working. And what we need to do is trust God in how he works and continue to just look to Him for guidance through the processes and through the different seasons. I've always loved Isaiah 28, verse 19, particularly. It's one of those kind of Bible memory verses for me, referring to the Lord. Notice it there as the one who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. You know, I'm not a real good Bible memorization purposes. I like little phrases that stick out to me that I can remember that. The Lord is wonderful in counsel, excellent guidance. That's not a whole lot to remember, but that's really good stuff to remember that the Lord is wonderful in counsel and he's excellent in the guidance he gives. A lot of times we realize we need some counsel for our life. Maybe we're trying to get direction. We need some guidance. What do I do in this situation? How do I handle this circumstance? What's the right way to approach this? And naturally, what we tend to do is we usually seek counsel and guidance from other people around us first, right? And look, I'm not saying that God can't speak through other people, but let's never forget the reality is the safest place to get wonderful counsel and excellent guidance is directly from God. (laughs) And one of the most profound ways that God often you'll find in your life and my life does that again and again and again is by putting our face In this book, because God speaks through what God's spoken, and this is what God has already spoken, a a volume of 66 Spirit-inspired, authoritative messages, books from God that speak to us in a way that give us wonderful counsel and excellent guidance. Again, Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. Direct my steps, O oh Lord, according to your word. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sport. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intents of our heart. It helps us divide and discern between what's soulish and what's spiritual. And sometimes that's tough because we're super integrated beings, right? Lord, is this is this from just the soulish part of me? Is this just my mind and these thoughts? And is this just my emotions? Or Lord, is this this genuinely something from your spirit, bearing witness with my spirit, the eternal spiritual part of me? Lord, which is this? Is it my emotions and my, my own thoughts and thinking? Or is this truly, and we're trying to distinguish what's from the spirit And maybe what's from our own human spirit sometimes, and the Bible says the word of God, like a sharp surgical sword goes in and it can divide and distinguish and cut a line between what's soulish and what's truly of the spirit of God in our lives sometimes. It can judge our thoughts and our intents. Paul writing of the value and benefit of God's word says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, which means instruction, teaching, correction, reproof instruction so that the man or woman of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's word so oftentimes is the primary method where God, as we seek him, Lord, I don't know what to do. Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 33 that God declares, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. Man, there are so many times I don't know what to do. I've not known what to do, but, but the wonderful thing is there is someone who's wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance, and he speaks to his people. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, and if we go to him realizing he's a wonderful counselor and gives excellent guidance in our lives, He will speak to us and counsel us and guide us and so many times help us so that we can then make right decisions and take correct paths and not have to make U-turns. And it's amazing how he can advise us in such an effective way and you're always going to get excellent counsel from God. I can't assure you you're always going to get excellent counsel from other human beings. God can speak through people. I'm not diminishing that. I understand the value of that. But there are times, too, where we may seek the counsel of a person. Even at times, there have been occasions where I've sought the counsel of someone who I've highly respected. But yet, at the end of the day, as I sought the Lord, realized, you know what? I highly respect them, but I don't feel like that that's God's guidance. In good intention, they sought to share what they thought was best, and, 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 I, and I appreciate their respect. But I can't automatically just assume every single time that's a guarantee that what that person's saying is is excellent guidance, and it's God's wisdom. And so how wonderful that we would go to God first. We realize God can speak through different avenues, but to just know this about God, boy, what a wonderful thing. Who needs a counselor, a therapist, and to pay $99 an hour? You've got God for free, and he can speak to you and give you wonderful counsel and excellent guidance. Chapter 29 goes on to tell us, woe, here's another one of these woes, woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Now take note of that, the city where David dwelt. Add year to year, let feasts come around. Yet, God says, I will distress Ariel. Now, This phrase, Ariel, is a title here being used for Jerusalem. Now, we know that from the context and from the context alone. First of all, verse 1 tells us that Ariel, that God refers to here, is the city where David dwelt. Well, that's a clear picture. We know later in the chapter in verse 8, at the end of verse 8, he speaks of those who fight against Mount Zion. So we know that's a reference to Jerusalem from other places as well. So for whatever reason here, it's the only place that it shows up We have Jerusalem in this particular chapter referred to by this title or name, Ariel, which is translated actually with two different meanings. Uh, One could be translated Lion of God. The other is translated Altar. Uh, Now, uh, some say that's because of just the sound of the word, not only just the Hebrew implication. It's only used here. It seems perhaps God's using this, referring to the city of Jerusalem, perhaps indicating calling them Ariel because Israel uh, Jerusalem excuse me is the capital city of God's people where the temple was where the worship system was as the capital city it should have been in a sense like a mighty lion a place of strength for the lord but unfortunately sadly due to Israel's sin and their rebellion against god as we've been seeing in Isaiah's prophecy Because of that sin and rebellion against God, rather than being like a mighty lion, they instead were going to be slain like sacrifices upon an altar as their blood would be shed because they became vulnerable to enemy invaders who came against them because, in a sense, they put themselves out from under God's covering by rejecting God and putting themselves in a place of vulnerability. And year after year, as verse 1 says... The feasts would come around, but we're going to see those feasts, they remained nothing more sadly than just religious observances. They were going through the routines. They were observing the feasts, but we're going to see later on where God is going to say, these people are honoring me with their lips. They're going through the motions, but their hearts are far from me. They've removed their hearts. It was just religious routine, but they lost relational connection with God. And this is what caused them to go from being a mighty lion to really being like a sacrifice presented on the altar. And perhaps this is why God's using this term here, uh, calling them Ariel almost somewhat maybe sarcastically with divine sarcasm. He says, verse two, yet I will distress Ariel. Notice God's the one saying this. There shall be heaviness and sorrow. The idea is like grieving at a funeral or the loss of, uh, of loved ones in death. There shall be much heaviness and sorrow. It shall be to me... As Ariel, perhaps they're speaking of the idea of of an altar where sacrifices have been made. Verse 3 says, And I will encamp against you all around and lay siege against you with a mound and will raise siege works against you. You shall be brought down, the idea is from their pride. You shall speak out of the ground, the idea is because they've been laid low in the dust. Your speech shall be low out of the dust, your voice shall be like a mediums out of the ground, and your speech shall whisper. The idea there is now the weakness of the voice, like in a a whisper because the the humanity is so weak. Again, notice, out of the dusk. So what's being described here is God, uh, as a consequence of their wrongdoings, would allow, he says, verse two, distress to come upon his people because they had turned away from him again. Their defense was their reliance upon God. As they were dependent upon God, they could face enemies that were much greater than them and God would give them miraculous victories. He would be their shield and he would be their defense. But at the same time, we see throughout the history of Israel, when they would turn away from God, they would rebel against God and they would cast God behind their backs and enter into idolatry or enter into sinfulness, God would simply allow them to see what it's like when they wanted to live without God's involvement in their lives. And he would let them become vulnerable, and then enemies would come in and would invade them from time to time, and they would suffer consequences. And here God's picturing how they would—he would allow them to become distressed, and that they would be sorrowing. Verse two says, "In anguish, with a heaviness in their circumstances, and deep sorrow because of what had happened." And verse three and four describes really how the Assyrians, as we've talked about before, would come in after they conquered the northern kingdom. They would then come down to Judah, and they would surround the city of Jerusalem, which we're talking about here, and they would lay siege against the city of Jerusalem, and God says, I will raise the siege works against you. So notice, God's allowing Assyria to do this, but in a sense, through his instrumentality, he's permitting them to be able to have access making Israel now vulnerable and the city of Jerusalem vulnerable. And as we know, Assyria came and they laid siege for a long period of time to the city of Jerusalem. And it looked like Jerusalem was going to be conquered just like the Northern Kingdom was. And when any people understand the ancient culture heard this idea of a siege and the raising of siege works against you to bring you down and humble you, that struck terror in the hearts of people. Because typically, siege warfare would be when an army would surround a city, and sometimes they would lay siege to cities for years, some historians say up to decades, living outside the walls. And the idea was you could not go in or out, and no matter how many resources and stockpile of all your necessities you had, eventually it was just a matter of time. You would succumb to starvation or cannibalism or you eventually would just surrender. Because as you did not have fresh water and you did not have access to restoring your food stores, eventually the siege would lead to starvation and horrible conditions inside the city. And so this would terrify the people. And remember, as the Assyrians surrounded them, it looked like Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah was going to be defeated by the Assyrians. However, God in his mercy, after due time, allowing them to be humbled and to be disciplined as the Assyrians laid siege to the capital city of Jerusalem, God, after humbling them, came actually in and assisted and rescued them. And that's what he's describing in verse 5, where God says, moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust. Now, now he's talking about defeating their foes. They shall be like fine dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones, like chaff that passes away, that is quickly... Like no big deal, just blowing away the chaff. Yet it shall be in notice, verse 5, an instant and suddenly. You will be punished by the Lord of hosts, God's now speaking to their enemies, with the thunder of an earthquake and great noise, with a storm and tempest, and with the flame of a devouring fire. The multitude of all nations who fight against Ariel or Jerusalem, even all who fight against her and her fortress. And distress her, God says, shall be as a dream of a night vision. The idea like a nightmarish experience, but quickly eradicated. That, that, that quickly, like a dream, it would just vanish. The enemy would vanish away quickly. Verse 8, it shall even be as when a hungry man dreams. And look, he eats in his dream, looks like he's going to enjoy. But yet he awakens and his soul was still empty. In other words, the dream results in nothing. Or when a thirsty man dreams and look, he drinks. But when he awakes, indeed, he is faint. In other words, it still results in nothing. The end of verse 8, so the multitude of all the nations shall be who fight against Mount Zion or fight against Jerusalem. So notice, God describes how he's going to bring this strong deliverance to rescue his people there in Jerusalem And it's interesting that as he's describing this, speaking to their enemy as Assyria laid siege around the city, God says to them, verse 6, they're going to be punished with thunder and earthquake and great noise, a storm and a tempest, a flame and a devouring fire. And all who fight against her, verse 7, and distress her, he says, will quickly be dealt away with, he says, like a passing dream. The end of verse 5, he calls it an instant sudden victory. Notice he says, in an instant, suddenly, their enemy would be punished. Now, we've mentioned this briefly. We'll see it in a few chapters in Isaiah, one of three uh, records of the historical deliverance, miraculously, that God brought when the Assyrians laid siege to Ariel, to Jerusalem. And remember, the Bible tells us that God sends out an angel And in one night, 185,000 Assyrian troops who were surrounding that city, laying siege, looking like it was the nail in the coffin and their city was done with. And in one night, God just sends an angel and eliminates and kills 185,000 Assyrian troops, a miraculous deliverance, and the rest who are remaining turn and they go away. And God instantly with great power does something through this angelic intervention. And again, doesn't tell us it's Michael the archangel. Doesn't say God himself had to show up and do it. Just an angel. Sam, Bob, one angel. God just says, go take care of that. And that's the power of one angel at God's bidding. That's not the power of God. That's God dispatching an angel with his dispatched power to the created angel to go and do that. But God fights on behalf of his people, and in one night, God eradicates an entire problem, because God's able to do that. We can be in a situation where it looks like it is absolutely guaranteed, it's over, no way, the ship's going down, we're, we're overcome, we're destroyed, and listen, it only takes God a day, and he can turn everything around if he wants to. God can involve himself in a situation and radically transition everything And notice, it's very interesting, the heart of God as he deals with their enemies. If, again, I could draw your attention to the end of verse 8, God says this. It's almost as if he wants to lay a principle in regards to what he did in that situation when he fought against their enemies who were sieging his people in Jerusalem. He says, verse 8, "...so the multitude of all the nations shall be," throughout human history, "...shall be who fight against Jerusalem." it would be wise if people would take notice of that. God says, any and all nations, this shall be their end if they fight against my people and attack Jerusalem. For all history, God says, again, God's a God who changes not. Again, you can read Zechariah 12, I encourage you, it will fill in more commentary in detail, where whenever anyone comes against God's people, Zechariah says that Jerusalem will become like a cup of trembling to all nations, and like a, a drunken stupor, people will be you know, staggering, and, and everybody will be fixated on this piece of land in the Middle East the size of New Jersey, roughly, uh, that doesn't seem like it has much to offer, but it's because there's something spiritual with anti-Semitism and hatred for the Jews. And again, it's because they are God's people, because they brought the Messiah, because they brought the word of God, and the devil despises them and hates them. Revelation 12 confirms that it's the devil behind that hatred. And as the result of that, look, they are God's chosen people and, and God involves himself. In their military conflicts, God involves himself. And so it's very evident that God wants to make a, a point there that, you know, it's a, it's a dangerous thing, God says, to do this. God says, I can discipline them. And I understand that from a parental perspective. I could spank my kids. Nobody else better ever have tried to spank my children. You know, and, and in a sense, I sense the heart of God saying that, listen, I, I can discipline them, but nobody else ever better touch them and God's very protective and defensive over his people. Verse 9 he says, "Pause and wonder, blind yourselves and be blind." Now, here again the prophet's being somewhat sarcastic to the chosen people because they've refused to see what God wants them to see, sort of using sarcasm here, "blind yourselves and become blind." They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink, for the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. So Isaiah here, he's kind of sarcastically indicating how sadly God's people, in their own refusal to see the truth, to see what God was trying to show them about the error of their ways and their conditions that refusing to see truth from God, that this caused them to end up erring and brought upon themselves, we might say, a self-inflicted blindness, where because they didn't want to see, God says, okay, if you want to continue to play blind, then God says, go ahead, blind yourselves. If you refuse to see what I'm trying to show you, if you refuse to see the truth, then God says, understand what you're doing is you're basically causing yourself to lose proper perspective.'" And because you don't want to see what's right, God says, now you're not going to be able to see what's right. Your perspective is going to get all messed up and you're going to be blinded to reality. And look, this happens to human beings where they don't want to see the truth. They don't want to see what God's showing them. And then they struggle with a real distorted perspective about everything. Because if you don't believe the truth, it's amazing the crazy things you'll start to see and believe because your viewpoint gets all mixed up. And your perspective gets all confused. And as a result, they had kind of, God pictures them here, become like a drunken person. He says, they're drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. He says, verse 9, for the Lord has poured on you a spirit of deep sleep and closed your eyes. And the idea is they became like a drunken person staggering around who could not get their bearings, Because they didn't want to see what God was showing them, as the result of that, they created a self-inflicted blindness, and they were staggering around, the idea is unable to get their footing like a drunk person, and basically, God granted them their stubborn desire. God granted them their refusal. God tried to show them, but God says, if you want to blind your own self by closing your eyes to what I'm trying to show you that's clear and best for you, then God says, I'll give you what you want. And he says that God poured upon them this spirit of lethargy and kind of closed their eyes. Sadly, even he says the prophets and the seers, again, those who should have been speaking God's word, had sadly the spiritual leaders in resisting light had become just as blind as everyone else. And now you have the blind leading the blind. Verse 11, he goes on to describe it further, saying the whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. The idea is it's mysterious. You, you can't get the message from it, which men deliver to one who is literate, able to read, saying, hey, would you read this, please? And he says, I cannot, for it's sealed. It's, it's, it's too hard to understand, the idea is. Then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I am not literate. In other words, I cannot read. Now, the imagery here, verse 11 and 12, that God's indicating is that God's people no longer had interest to see what God's word had to say. And this became the problem. They had lost interest in knowing the truth. Notice verse 11 and 12, using pictures here. They were being encouraged to read in order to hear what God had to say. God's saying, here, read this. Read this. I want to write my will on the fleshly tablet of your heart. I want you to know the truth. I've made it clear. I've made it evident. But they were doing the excuse process. Oh, we we can't read that. It's too complicated. It's too hard to understand. Others were saying, well, just, "Well, I'm just not a good reader. We we just we can't read that." It just I'm I'm not a good reader and 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 here sadly what's going on is they're just making excuses for why they wouldn't read the word of God. And look, this is a really unhealthy place to go, where all of a sudden we make excuses why we would not read the word of Oh, It's just uh, the, God's word is just too complicated. No, it's not. That's just an excuse. Or, or I'm just not a reader. And here the people, the problem was they just had lost interest in the word of God. They didn't want to know the truth and know what God's word had to say. Amos, who really actually was prophesying right almost up to the time of Isaiah, Isaiah sort of picks up where Amos' prophecy is leaving off. Isaiah declared this about the conditions of the time. Amos 8, he described that there would be a famine in the land, a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. In other words, describing a spiritual famine where people become apathetic and distracted by all types of other things and hearing other voices. And it's amazing, want to read everything else. People will spend hours reading things that are posts on social media. And, you know, sadly, our American culture, we spend way more time looking down than we do looking up. And we'll, we, we give time to all these other things. And God says something really bad can happen when people lose an appetite for hearing God's voice. And they end up starving from being able to hear the words that God is trying to say to them. And this is what was happening in that day with God's people, and it was leading to a great deterioration of their spiritual condition. Look what he goes on to say, verse 13. Therefore, in light of these things, the Lord said, inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips. So again, they're saying the right things. They're quoting Bible verses. They could pray prayers in the synagogues. They could sing religious songs from the Psalms. But he says they've removed their hearts far from me and fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men so he's describing how basically they were sadly giving lip service to god they were saying the right things but there was no personal reality to their spiritual life they were they were just going through the motions of religious routines, going through the synagogue process, going through the feast celebrations year after year, month after month, going through the motions, but their heart was no longer engaged. And God said, they're honoring me with their lips. They're saying the right things. They're doing the right things. They're pulling the levers. They're pushing the buttons. They were doing all their good religious traditions, being very faithful in such things. But God said, the problem is they've removed their hearts from me. They've removed their heart from, there's no heart behind the, the, the process, God says. It's just religious observance, there's no heart connection, it's just an observance of religious duty, but there was really nothing happening inside of their heart between them and God, and God says, they removed their hearts from me. They disconnected their hearts from the process. They reduced what was relational, experiential, to just religious observance and duty, and they could perform religious activities, but sadly, they weren't returning back in right relationship to God, and this was a great problem among them. And, and here he says of them that they were going through these motions, but it really was becoming meaningless, because their hearts were not connected. And look, we can read this, and certainly, even as Jesus, remember, used these very statements from Isaiah, Matthew 15, and other places in the gospel, and he rebuked the Pharisees, remember, and the religious leaders in his day of this very same thing, and said that these people, Jesus went on to actually they worship me in vain. Now that that's always been a really sobering statement to me. Worshiping in vain. Oh, come on, we are worshiping the Lord. And God says, you were doing something, <laughs> but your worship was vain. It was empty. And boy, if we were just to be very candid regarding our own reality, th- this can happen to all of us, right? We, and I think the longer we walk with the Lord, the more it almost becomes a danger in our lives because we become familiar with the things of the Lord and worship. We can, we can just kind of come in and out and look, it's good routines, my life is full of really good routines, great routines. I'm not smoking crack and looking at pornography and doing, I mean, I don't have bad, I got good routines. I'm getting up, I'm reading my Bible, I'm serving the Lord, I'm doing ministry, I'm preparing Bible studies, I'm, I'm praying with people, I'm worshiping multiple times a week, but I have to be careful that I don't reduce those things where it becomes just mindless religious observance. And my heart's not connected to the process. And how we can all, whether it's in our prayers or we can be singing the words to a song and maybe we even know the song or it's memorized or we're looking at the words on the screen, but our heart and our mind is totally disconnected to the process. And we're not really engaged in it. We've removed our heart from the process. And this is always a bad place to be spiritually. And God was brokenhearted and quite honestly, very dishonored that they were going through this in this meaningless way, he says, and their fear toward me is being taught by the commandments of men. In other words, notice, not the commandments of God. It was no longer based in biblical reality. It was just religious traditionalism. It was just legalistic ideas of this is what it means to be spiritual. This And God says the problem is, is they esteem the commandments of men over the commandments of God. And so here they had reduced their spiritual experience to something that was very disconnected verse 14 therefore he says behold i will do again a marvelous work among the people a marvelous work and a wonder for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of the prudent shall be hidden so god says i'm going to need to do a marvelous work god was going to shake things up God was going to work. He was going to bring in the Assyrians. He was going to accomplish things among them where in a marvelous way, in a wonderful way, God was going to work among the people because he didn't want to see them stay in that spiritual condition of apathy and disconnection for their own welfare. It dishonored him, and it was just very destructive in their own lives. Verse 15, he says, and woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, And their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows us? In other words, notice the people, because they were not living in right relationship with God as the result of that, they were beginning to live wrong. And they were beginning to live in carnal ways. And sadly, here in verse 15, the prophet is warning the people who wrongly thought that they could hide their wrong deeds and keep it in the dark because they were foolishly believing the deception. Hey, no one knows what we're doing in our private lives. We go up there once a week and we meet with all the people of God and we say all the words, we repeat all the phrases, we do the thing, but because their hearts were disconnected and they didn't have healthy relationship with God, there were inappropriate things going on in their personal and their private lives because they weren't having an experience with God And they were sadly falling into this deception where they were doing things, it says, verse 15, hiding and doing their works in the dark and then saying, who sees? Nobody sees what we're doing, right? Nobody among the congregation sees what one is doing. But God sees everything, right? And they were saying wrongly, who knows? No one knows us and knows what we're doing. No one knows we're living a double life. We keep a really good image in front of all the people of God. We're the loudest singer in the congregation. And and, and God says, I know what's real of your personal life. I see what you're doing in the private moments. Again, we can't hide anything from God. And this was a great mistake, a blindness that was happening. Verse 16, surely you have things turned around, God says. What a great statement. God says, you've got things all turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? In other words, does the potter and the clay stand on equal footing? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed me, he has no understanding? In other words, notice that the the clay is becoming arrogant now. We're the clay, God's the potter, the Bible says, and now the clay is basically saying, hey, we're equal with the potter, he didn't make me, I don't owe him anything, and rather than the, pot, the, the clay submitting to the potter and being formed by the potter, really what happened was the people, as the clay, were basically, in their arrogancy, trying to form God in their image and according to their ways and what they wanted. And it's exactly what we see happening today, where people having, sadly, no reverence for God, this is really what begins to happen, is kind of this arrogancy toward God, where instead of looking at God as a potter who does whatever he wills, the Bible tells us in Psalms that that God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. I like that. And he doesn't have to apologize for it, (laughs) because he's God. He's in heaven. and He does whatever he pleases. He's the potter. We're the clay. The idea is that we should yield. We should let him form our lives. And if we do that, right, he does some really good stuff in our lives. I mean, think about it. In this room tonight, we are a bunch of clusters of dust with the breath of life breathed into us. And look what God has made of some of our lives when we yielded to him. And consider what lives become when they resist God and they don't yield to the potter, or they say, I don't need the potter. I'm better than the potter. I know more than the potter. I don't need him to be involved in my life. And this was what was happening among the people. He says, verse 17, is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and a fruitful field? shall be esteemed as a forest. Now, as we come to verse 17, you could tell like the shift focuses here rather quickly. Isaiah does this from time to time we've talked about where he goes from the present and he zooms out now. And it seems here he's jumping forward to the time of the restoration of God making all things right. And this would make total sense because he's just described how they've got things. He says, God says, you have things, verse 16, all turned around. In other words, God's saying... You got things all backwards and mixed up. But God says, look, there's coming a time where ultimately I'm gonna make everything right again. And I'm gonna restore everything back to the right way and make things right. And Isaiah seems to give a glimmer of this where God will reverse man's error and correct all things in the future. And it seems he's looking down in these verses all the way down to the kingdom age saying, is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field a place that was known to not be so fruitful and the fruitful field esteemed as a forest in that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall be see out of obscurity and out of darkness and the humble shall also increase their joy in the lord and the poor among men shall rejoice in the holy one of israel so it seems isaiah is seeing i believe something all the way down to a time in the time of the kingdom age when jesus returns when he's rightfully ruling and reigning when no one can even resist his reign if they wanted to and he then begins to make everything wrong right and notice what was once barren and unproductive that lacked fruit he causes it to blossom into great fruitfulness in that time the ones who would not hear and could not hear, God will open up their ears and now they'll be listening. Now they'll be listening to the words of the book. He says, those who would not see and could not see that were blinded, he says, the blind, their eyes will be opened and they'll begin to see because God will miraculously open their eyes and then they'll see clearly. Even God's people, Israel, will then see Jesus. The Bible tells us in Zechariah, they will look upon him who they pierced and will mourn for him like one mourns for one And They'll realize you are the Messiah. We miss you. And they will worship Jesus as king, realizing him as their Messiah, and through an encounter with the Lord, as he's reigning and he's present in that day. Notice the byproduct of that, and experiencing his presence is there, verse 19. It says, There will be great joy in the hearts of mankind as Christ's presence is on the earth and we're in right relationship with him fully as humanity. He says, the humble shall increase their joy in the Lord and the poor, those lacking and without, shall rejoice in the Holy One. Again, do you notice where joy stems from, God's saying? It stems from an encounter with the Lord. He says, the byproduct of humility is an increase of joy, increase of joy, you know, so often the pride of man causes people to be so miserable. And when we're proud, whether we're being proud against God or we're just struggling with the different ways pride has its effects in our lives, it's pride that makes us miserable. And God says, do you want to experience some joy? That's the benefit of humility, God says. The humble find joy and increase their joy in the Lord. What a wonderful and a valuable thing.